This is Season 3, Episode 4 of the Language Mastery Show. I'm your host, John Fotheringham. In today's episode, I chat with Richard Simcott again, who returns to the podcast after our first conversation six years ago. Richard is a, quote, hyper-polyglot who speaks 16 languages fluently and nearly 50 to various levels, which is a feat that led HarperCollins to name him one of Britain's most multilingual people. He's also the co-founder of the Polyglot Conference, which is an annual event that brings together polyglots, linguists, and lovers of language from all over the world. Just an update that this year it's going to be online from October 16th to 25th, 2020. And he returns to the show today to talk about how he juggles so many languages, the minimum effective dose required to move a language project forward each week, and how he chooses which languages to pursue. He is absolutely a fountain of language learning wisdom, and I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Here's Richard. I'm honored to have Richard Simcott back on the show again. It's been almost six years, I think five and a half years since I had you on last time. And I had the privilege of finally meeting you in person this last year in Bratislava, the Polygot Gathering. And uh, it was nice to, to know that you are who you are in real life, to say where you are online, because sometimes that's not the case for some people. So that was delightful. So yeah, so welcome back. Well, thank you very much for inviting me back. And it was indeed a pleasure to meet you in person in Bratislava. Um, going to these events is always a rare treat for me. Uh, one of the things in the calendar that I really enjoy um, and look forward to. I look forward to being back with kindred spirits, people who enjoy languages as well and um, meeting new people as well as old friends. So um, there's a lot to look forward to at all of these events. Yeah, and there's more and more every year. I mean, there's, of course, your event, the Polyglot Conference as well, which we can touch on later. Um, there's Langfest, which I, correct me wrong, that one's actually going to be co, or the plan was to co-run that with Polyglot Conference. But anyway, there's lots of things going on now, so there's more chance than ever to, to go meet other uh language obsessed individuals all over the world which is great uh that actually might be where i want to start today with you is for my for my own personal selfish reasons as well uh there is this notion and i've had this i had this at least for most of my language blogging life which is now almost 11 years that i have no business going to a polyglot because i didn't consider myself a polyglot i you know i speak English natively, and then I've learned Japanese and Mandarin to various levels, and just a tiny, tiny bit of a few others. But, you know, I see folks like you carrying on fluently in, you know, 20 languages, 14, I mean, I think you work in 14, correct me if I'm wrong. So I had that sort of as my, my goal slash standard of what a polyglot is, and was really intimidated by that, and okay. didn't go to any of these events for years. I finally broke through that fear and, and did it. And I'm kicking myself for not doing it earlier because they, as you said, they're a wonderful way to meet people. There are people of all levels. There are monolinguals there. There are people that are just starting their first yeah. L2, you know, second language. So, so what would you say to somebody like that who's who's either afraid to go to one of these events, doesn't think they belong there, isn't sure if it's right for them? What what would you say? Okay, so I think the first thing probably is just to sort of debunk is the reason why. Uh, my event particularly is called the Polyglot Conference and why the Polyglot Gathering is called the Polyglot Gathering and why Langfest used to have the word Polyglot in its title too. And the other fourth event that I can think of off the top of my head is Polyglotar, which is in Brazil. And they've all got this kind of polyglot theme, right? Langfest mm -hmm. rebranded and turn, turned into Langfest, partly because of this reason. Uh, because right. as the Polyglot Conference, and I think I, I can speak a little bit for the Polyglot Gathering, they, they've been established now for a number of years. So changing the branding, particularly for me as a Polyglot Conference, wouldn't make much sense. But the reason why it was the Polyglot Conference in the beginning and not just the language conference or something like that yeah. is because it was born out of a community of people um, and we identified as people online who enjoy lots of different languages. So it was difficult to say, okay, it's French community, a French language learning community, or a Spanish, or a German, or a Chinese, or a Japanese, or whatever else. It was a true polyglot. In the sense of the word, many languages, not somebody who speaks many languages, but also many languages as well. So I always understood the idea of 
you can actually talk about polyglot things as well as polyglot people. So things that are in multiple languages as well. And when when it was born, it was to bring the people from the polyglot community together offline. And so it made sense to call it the Polyglot Conference. And that was the first of this kind of event that there ever was, was the first Polyglot Conference in 2013 in Budapest. And we, we amassed a group of 140 people together and we all talked a lot about languages and we had presentations, much in the same way as we do now. Um, it's changed and it's sort of diversified from there. Uh, but what we also got, even in the beginning, were people who were just interested in languages, hadn't necessarily studied a huge number of them or felt proficient in a huge number of them. They may have spoken one or two as well, even in the very, the, the very beginning, but they were interested in this whole polyglot notion, this idea of learning lots of languages or, or being interested in a multitude of languages. And what we saw is, exactly like you, a number of people came to me afterwards and said, I'm not a polyglot, Shall I, do I belong there? Oh, mm-hmm. I came last year and I hadn't come for three years because even though I could have come and it was close by, I decided not to because I, I wasn't really a polyglot. And right. at that point, um, Alex and I sat down and talked about this. Alex was helping me at the time with the event and organizing it. Um, he said, look, we need to have a tagline. And so we, we decided on a tagline of um, for everyone who loves a language. Now, right. we made it Polyglot Conference for everyone who loves language and not languages, which people often mm-hmm. question me about as well in the community, particularly in the language learning community. Why didn't you put languages? And I said, because actually, even if you speak just one language, you will probably find something of interest at the Polyglot Conference because right. if your passion is language, Let's take English as a good example. We're speaking English now. Our language is made up of so many different components. Mm -hmm. A lot of Romance words from the Norman French that came in from from Latin, um, Germanic base, Germanic verb structures. Um, We also have a lot of borrowings from many different languages. Like, you know, Japanese, you say Japanese, obviously, is one of your languages, like Mm -hmm. kamikaze. Uh, We have these words of the second Yes, tsunami. It's all, all the nice words, right? All the nice positive yeah. words. But, yeah. um, you know, we we do we have these words that we just incorporate into English. And so, if you start listening to people talking about other languages or subjects about those languages, like um, you know Japanese culture, or you start understanding more and more of that aspect of English and where it came from, the origins, you get into the etymology of our own language. So, even if English is your main passion you still stand to get a lot from the people that come to the conference and you learn from each other. Absolutely. And I will, I always say this to people. I always say this to people. One of the people in my life I learned most from about language was a monolingual English speaker. He mm. knew so much about language. He'd been, he was so well read that mm-hmm. he knew just infinitely more than, than I do about English and about the, the history of the language, the etymology of the language. And right. So if you're one of those people, you know something that's niche, you may even not realize how how much you know. And you just might say, I'm not a polyglot. Well, you may not be a polyglot, but you may also have knowledge, and you probably most definitely do have knowledge that other people don't have because your knowledge is individual to you, your experience, your background. It might be a dialect that you heard speaking up in the, you know, in the middle of the US or in the UK or in Australia that was mixed or came from certain backgrounds and heritages that, that you're not even aware of. You just know it because you grew up with it. And somebody at the event will find that particularly interesting. So you should definitely not hide your great knowledge and your personality. You should come and share it with the rest of the group because someone will learn from you. And uh, so I always say, all you need to come to the Polyglot Conference is a love of language. And there is one other really important thing, a smile. Yes. Lots of smiles. Lots of smiles and lots of hugs. That was <laughs> yeah. those are two of the things I, I, <laughs> I noticed first, which I thought, this must be very strange to the, uh, depending on where the conferences are held, if, if that local culture is not normally one that expresses affection through physical touch and lots of smiles and laughs and sort of beaming. It must be kind of jarring <laughs> some of these local communities. 
because you know there's some cultures where you like uh, my my wife had had lived in uh ukraine for a year and uh it was funny one time she asked a friend like do you think i could pass off as being ukrainian because once she was you know learning a fair amount of russian they said no you walk down the street like this everyone knows because you're you know you're smiling <laughs> and you're just so like full of life like you can't fool anybody because people here just don't smile unless they're crazy so <laughs> which exaggeration but you know what i mean anyway uh it, it's it's interesting you mentioned the thing about monolinguals knowing a lot of languages that's definitely been the case um, so my background academically is in linguistics and in school there were definitely lots of linguistic professors i met who didn't really speak a foreign language i mean maybe they could read it maybe they understood its syntax or its morphology or its phonetics but but their interest and therefore their time and their focus was never on communicating the language it was on thinking about it and breaking it down and um not to say that all linguists are are that way there are plenty that are definitely the other extreme but uh, you've got yeah, we've got field linguists out there that go and study all sorts of languages and learn to speak them to record them right as well sometimes. Which is amazing. The way they do that, I mean, with with no uh, lingua franca, right, to go upon. They just, they go in and they just use context and face-to-face. They pick up a stick and then they drop it and then they have them say what, what they did. And then in 30 minutes, they can create this map of, it's apps, if no one's ever seen this before, I'll try to find something to put in the show notes of mm-hmm. an example of this, but it is absolutely well, awe-inspiring. We have them speak at the conference. We we have had um, field linguists speak at the conference in Novi Sad, and um, and it is it's fa- it's fascinating work. And um, I think you know, like you say, linguists of uh, I mean, like language learners, they're very varied. So you've got linguists that focus on certain aspects of linguistics, and you've got uh, language learners that focus. Sometimes, for example, more on the literature, more on reading. They want right. to read certain things. Some are really into poetry. Some are really into theater. Some are really into, like, especially that Japanese learners, you often find these manga enthusiasts that, mm-hmm. that are desperately, you know, really into manga. And that got them into Japanese or Korean. You find people that love Korean sitcoms or right. um, Korean series. You get all these different flavors, right, that run through. And then you get people who just like to dabble in many, many languages to explore the language, not to necessarily speak it to a very high level, but to communicate their ideas and their thoughts in a basic way and then move on to the next one. And they they enjoy that thrill of the chase to get to right. the level where they can manipulate the basic structures to do that. And um, I think all of them are all great endeavors to pursue in life. And um, none for me are, are better or worse in any way. They're all just different. Absolutely. Um, yeah. There is this, at least I perceive this, you can speak to this if you've had a different experience, but there does seem to be this kind of unspoken, assumed hierarchy in the language community of, of which of these is is better than others. I don't, I agree with you. I don't think, I think they're all perfectly valid and beautiful. Just, just do what you want to do, you know, follow your passion, follow your interests, you know, whichever path you choose, there's going to be yeah. some fun and there's going to be some struggle. Like that's inevitable. But yeah, for example, this idea that if you don't speak a language, you only can read it, that somehow that's, mm-hmm. you know, a travesty or a failure. And I think, no, just maybe that's just not yeah. what they want to do. And that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I mean, there, there sometimes is, I suppose, that, I mean, it's a natural human condition, right? There's um, in many people, there's this competitive nature. And some mm-hmm. people, for some people, it's more pronounced than others. Um and so I, I guess there's a kind of a natural, yeah, but this person speaks French, but I speak it better or they speak it better than I do. And sometimes right. that motivates, sometimes that motivates depending on your personality type and who you are and what you sort of, your, your goals are, right? But um, look, I always say this, that um, the sooner we all accept that we're never going to speak a language to 100% perfection 100% of the time, the better. <laughs> Absolutely. It doesn't matter who you are. If you're listening to this and you're one of those perfectionists and you, you love to learn the languages as, as best you can, that's fantastic. Um, if you're somebody who just likes to learn the basics, again, fantastic. Carry on doing what you're doing. Neither one of you are going to actually speak the language 
perfectly all right. the time. Um, and I hope that people can accept that and just let the pressure uh, sort of wash off themselves. Carry on trying, strive for perfection. Sure, strive for strive for whatever you want. Um, it's just one of those things. It's like, you know, try, try and live forever. Try and live forever. <laughs> right. <laughs> Whatever. Knowing you're going to die. Yeah. You can, yeah. Exactly. I mean, that's the beauty of life, right? Is that you enjoy the time and the moments that you're here and, and, and yeah. what, what life brings to you. And I think language is the same thing. It's enjoy what you get and what you get out of there. And don't worry too much about what you don't get or what you, you know, where you're not going to reach. Just reach where you're going to reach and enjoy the ride. Right. Yeah, it's it's tough to find that balance between continuing to strive and grow, but then also being okay where you are. It's a very almost Zen colon kind of paradox where to to actually make progress, you need to be somewhat happy and okay where you are, and go to war yeah. with the 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 army you have, so to speak, in terms of you know whatever words you know and grammar you know start but at the same time this is assuming you want to speak for example um but at the same time it doesn't mean you you don't keep striving and learning and i mean it came to my mind just a second ago talking about perfection i definitely am a recovering perfectionist um but even with english right even even with our native language we're now using right now i still make mistakes i just the other day i said uh i said oscillate and no joke Mm -hmm. I'm 40 years old. I'm a native speaker, right? I'm fairly highly educated. I read a lot. I listen to a lot of talks my whole life. I thought it was oscillate. Somebody pointed out, no, it's oscillate. And I thought, oh, today, today years old, you know, like literally 40 years of my life, I've been saying it in the wrong way. I never knew. And that happens all the time. All the time. You you do. I remember actually when I was, I think I was 26 at the time and I was in the car with my mum and and I've said I've been through university as well, and and my mum said a word to me that I'd never heard her use, and I'd never seen it before. And it was it, you, you probably will know this word as well anyway, quagmire. Mm-hmm. And 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 I I heard it and I said, I said what? Instead <laughs> of quagmire, it's like a quagmire. <laughs> and I was like, I've never, I honestly never come across the word, and yeah. and it's. For most educated speakers, it's a normal word. But um, for, well, we Americans for me, know it because we've said in them more recently than than you know Brits. So we we have more <laughs> recent history of Quagmire. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I actually couldn't believe I'd got to the age of twenty six and I was still learning a word from mum, um, mm-hmm. which is really interesting. But but you know, I think it's good to to be humbled sometimes as well. You know, to sort of say, like you say, oscillate, oscillate. It's good to be humbled every now and again because yeah. it makes you realize, okay, do you know what? I, I can still learn new things and it's actually fine. And it's fine to yeah. have got it wrong. Um, yeah. I've never heard quinoa pronounced. So I was calling oh. quinoa. Uh, you know, for, yeah, that's very common. And, yeah. and, uh, because it, and it's called quinoa in, in my home language, Macedonian. But um, ah. it's not in English, obviously. Right. But in some languages, it is. And I just thought, okay, well, like, where would you come to quinoa from if you just saw the word quinoa and you only read it? Right. Because English is one of those languages where you normally hear the word before you learn to read it. Um, when it comes Ideally. to basic consumables, yeah. right? You normally right. That's, that's a normal way of things. And I think most people in in the UK would have re- would have heard it as quinoa because they were getting into the or quinoa diet, and and then as soon, obviously once I'd heard it said, then I heard it said a bazillion times, and it was like, right. okay, of course, yeah, it's quinoa. Um, but I didn't you know, probably marry the two things together, what I was reading and what I heard. Yeah. Which, it, it speaks to both the power and the danger of visual input, I think, in language learning, because it's so strong. Yeah. I mean, if you if you read something first, that track gets laid down and it's really strong and trying to override that habit with the proper pronunciation can be really tough. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. And also if you get if you get a wrong pronunciation of a word, um either in a in a new language or in your mother tongue, um 
it's weird how it takes a lot of uh, focus and energy to overcome that. Um, So for many, many years as a child, I used to say binoculars incorrectly. Uh, And if I say it incorrectly now, I will probably just slip back into it again. But I used to say incorrectly, I used to call them binoculars. Binoculars, I used to call them as a child, which obviously isn't the word, but I knew how to spell it, but I'd always call them binoculars instead of binoculars. And right. now I can, uh, now I'm in this conversation, I'm, I'm you know, really forcing myself to say it correctly and incorrectly in the right way. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've, I've had that exact experience that you were, you were describing and, and I still have it in other languages too. I mean, I, it still happens. Um, um, I think it just shows we're human, right? Mm-hmm. And it shows that it doesn't, I think there's a fear that if you make a mistake, especially in some languages or cultures, that you're going to cause offense, you're going to um, have some, you know, drastic breakdown of communication, the sky's going to fall. Uh, and usually it happens is somebody's either like, huh? Or, oh, you meant this. And, and, then it go, yeah. and it goes on. It's fine. It's fine. And you make a note of it and you, you try to change it next time. It's really not a big deal. Just move on. Just move on to the next thing. It's really, really. Yeah. Um, I think people do worry about that. I think the problem is, especially for um, adult learners, is the psychology of making a mistake, of being oh. perceived as different, as wrong. Right. Um, it's all learned the behavior from our school days. We get to yeah. a point where we become self-conscious, right? And and we don't want to seem different. We don't want to seem strange. We don't want to seem weird. We don't want to seem like we're we're faking things or putting on a weird accent. And I think what's one of the things also you see um, with uh, people learning a new language later in life or even at school. So we used to get kids at school and they'd, they'd be learning French or German or whatever. And, and they'd pronounce it as they pronounce English in their own native dialect. And the reason the reason they'd often do that was because they didn't want to seem like they were putting on an accent in front of the children. So yeah. it would be it would be almost pronunciation's one thing, but accent actually that's my badge of honor, that's where I'm from, that's my group. So it was a good thing to have in that circumstance, in those those circumstances to have a, a really strong accent of your original group right to belong to mm. and to not distance yourself from that group being perceived as foreign and as you get older what people talk about is oh it sounds awful because i've got this awful accent when i speak or i want to improve my accent or mm. and all of a sudden people want to get away from that but because that learned behavior of, of fitting in has been so so cemented into our psyche and we're so ingrained that it's quite difficult to break down those barriers again of yeah. putting on an accent and and actually yeah, it's part of it unfortunately um, and you do hear people go the other way as well where they put on an accent that's so almost a caricature of what you yeah. what you'd normally hear yeah that's a tricky balance because so yeah, I think yeah it's, it's tricky tricky i would almost i don't know your thoughts on this but at least for a beginner learner i would almost advise probably to err on overdoing than underdoing at least in the beginning Mm -hmm. to try to get used to the sounds and you know wrap your tongue and your lips around these the sounds of this language because i definitely i'm in big agreement with uh um oh i'm blanking on the name no gabriel weiner we're talking about how you know, sounds really are the first thing. They're, they're the most important first kind of step in a language. And if you can't hear something, you can't say it. Um, and so in that least first stage, really probably overdoing it. And then finally, eventually realizing, okay, I can kind of scale back a little. But uh, I definitely, in my yeah. in my memory, I remember the other stream, as you were saying, of in my high school French class of people going, part of it's they don't want to look stupid, but they, the irony is they looked more stupid because they're like, oh, je suis American? Um, uh, je parle franquais? Um, <laughs> you know, it's just, you want to pull your hair exactly. off. Like, like, kind of a little, come on. Right now, yeah. You can kind of laugh at it, but yeah, I mean, it, but the, the psychologically, there's a good reason why people do that. And um, yeah. I think particularly from English-speaking countries, there's a really good reason. And in France as well, French people will often, French kids 
are very unforgiving if you try and put on an accent. So mm. it makes sense to me. Yeah. Yeah, they're not, their first goal is not learning the language properly. Their their goal is social cohesion and pecking order and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And humans are an interesting animal, man. Exactly. We are. I mean, interesting. I'd say weird, but yeah, interesting is a good word. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's a nice, in polite, euphemistic way of saying weird. Yes, indeed. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, what I change gears a little bit. Um, as I said at the very beginning of the show, we it's been almost six years since we last chatted, maybe five and a half on the show. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, time has marched on. I'm sure you've tried new things, learned new things that you certainly, I'm sure, have started new languages as you do. Um, is there anything that you've changed your mind about since then in terms of method, philosophy, um, priorities, for example, in a language? Or is it just more of the same? Um, so, so in terms of the methodology of, of learning and, and what's important, probably not. Um, I. I enjoy playing with different methods. I still, I still enjoy playing with different methods, even though I know what works for me. Um, what I, I sort of, I find really interesting is uh, the tendency of, of learners to skip over um, the really basic steps in language learning, mm. and um, and that's kind of their fall down. Where they, where they really do, 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 do the fall down on on those basic things in the beginning, like planning. Um, having a realistic idea of their lives, their schedules, um, what they want to learn, why they want to learn it. They tend to be the most basic mistakes that people make in language learning. And you can repeat it over and over again, but they're things, I think this is also why you see the crossover with um, just self-discipline management, time management, all of these kinds of things that you see, how to be a better person, how to do this. All of the advice is actually pretty much the same really in all right. of these areas all of these spheres that you see it's just that you apply it to language learning uh, for in yeah. our instance you know and but it, you see the same advice repeated over and over again this whole smart goals thing I, I put something out setting smart goals is super applicable in language learning because if you can't agree on the goal that you want to reach um, in a certain time frame to be able to look back and check on it as well it sounds very businessy and it sounds very etherical and it sounds very, um, you know, work we were put on this management course and they talked about smart objectives. And, mm-hmm. and yeah, we kind of learned what they meant. But it actually doesn't matter so much if you really internalize the exact idea of a smart objective and you can, you can write down the exact wording that the, that the teacher taught you for it. Not so important. The important things are the actual real elements that are inside that smart objective, and that's yeah. setting something up that's realistic for you to look back on and achieve, um, so that you feel that sense of achievement and you can move forward. Right? Because what I find is people say, "I want to learn German." Uh, okay, I'm not allowed yeah. to speak German. Okay, what does that mean? What, right. what does it right. mean? And, it, and when you ask people that question. You can see the look of shock on the face of. They don't know. Yeah. You're patronizing me right now. <laughs> yeah. What right. Are you talking about. Right. Right. Um, German, the language German. I want to. I want to speak it. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. But that's a huge thing to do. Yeah. If I wanted to say to you, I want to speak English. What does that mean? Do I want to speak English for what purpose? And I, I, I still find that people still do sort of. They don't set realistic goals. Sometimes even people who are quite good self self sort of autodidactics they'll they'll learn by themselves quite well and they'll have had many successes. Sometimes they, they even I mean I myself I, I fall foul to this from time to time and I have to give myself a wake up call. Look, be realistic. What do you want to do? So I think some of the things that I've changed probably in these six years, or I've continued more on the path of um, language projects. So I set myself a language project normally each year. Um, normally it's one, two, or three um, each year that I do. And that will normally be tied to a trip, traveling somewhere um, mm-hmm. I want to go. So like going to Indonesia, spent a month in Indonesia, and I wanted to learn enough Indonesian to get around, uh, to buy things, uh, to go to a restaurant, 
to ask for directions to go to the supermarket, go to the clothes shop, go to whatever, you know, to do, do general, introduce myself, talk about myself a little bit as well, have a bit of right. chit chat with the vendors, those kinds of things. So I set myself those kinds of goals with Indonesia and reached them, went to Indonesia, sort of tried to practice it a bit and uh, that was it really. And then came back and didn't worry about Indonesian again. Mm. Um, so I, I've done more of those kinds of projects that have kind of helped to give me a bit of variety in my language learning, uh, things that I hadn't really touched on before. And um, yeah, I found interesting because um, every language you learn, right? Every even if it's only a little bit, it widens your awareness of of different sounds, uh, different grammatical structures, different grammatical norms, um, mm-hmm. different words, lexicon that, that you wouldn't have touched on before. Sometimes you meet borrowings that you are like, how on earth did that word end up in that language? Yeah, right. I found this with with Indonesian word. The word for tool is alat in Indonesian alat. And it's the same word as in Macedonian for tool huh. as well. And I was like, oh, my word. Oh. And obviously, I know it's a Turkish word. It's a Turkish borrowing. Mm. But it's gone from, obviously, from Arabic, Arabic into Turkish to Macedonian. And it's gone the other way around, from Arabic into Indonesian. Mm. And I meet these That's words. very interesting. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's so cool kind of to see how words travel. Uh, around the globe, right. Uh, right. I really like it. Yeah, I love it. Have you read uh, Atomic Habits by chance? Are you familiar with James Clear or his his view on on habits? And I've not read it. It's a good one. Um, no, I've the reason I bring it up. No. Okay, no. good one. I'll maybe I'll send you a copy as a to thank you for coming on the show again. Um, he uh, his whole thing is he thinks goals are a great first step but that goals alone can actually be somewhat counterproductive in that um, they make success sort of binary. Like you're either, you're not there yet and then you got there and then that is over. Uh, so his whole focus is on mm-hmm. process, daily processes and habits. Yeah. And that's something that, you know, this is interviewing you, but just to share my view real quick on this, that that's something I've definitely changed my mind on in the last six years is I used to be all about goals. And now I see goals very much as the, the first step to aim the arrow at the target. And then yeah. from there, it's like, okay, how does the arrow actually get to the target? That's where the process comes in. Those are the daily little habits yeah. and the things you do every day. Absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. Which I think, at least for me, that's been one of the most interesting things to find out is when I interview people like you is actually to see what does your actual day look like? Like right now, if we were to be a fly on the wall in Richard Simcott's office or home. Heaven forbid. What what would what would we see in terms of language learning right now? Yeah. So I mean, I I agree with you. With um, in terms of goals, yes, I think there can be if you stick to what just if you say just one goal. Goals need to be. This is why I say talk about the smart idea of smart goals because they need to be measurable. You need to be able to, and you need to move goals and change goals and update goals. So I don't see goals as a static thing. Um, Mm -hmm. I think you should have weekly goals. And Mm -hmm. and what that would do then also would bring into what you're talking about with these ideas of habits. Because if you have a weekly goal of this week, I'm going to learn the days of the week. And I'm going to be able to, I'm going to learn to say, um, on Fridays, I go to the shops. Because in week one, we learned, I go to the shops as a simple verb and a simple noun that we learned in English. Uh, But actually, I want to be able to say when I do that. And so the following week, we might have that as our goal, when we do something in the morning, in the afternoon, on Friday afternoons, Friday evenings, I watch TV. These are the kinds of steps in language learning that you need to keep adding on and building on. And so the goals change uh, week by week for what you need to do. So I'd say that to do that, you then have to break down the goals or, as you referred to, the habits. Um, I would see it as a kind of a goal as well, because your daily goal is to do this at do that time, thing. Right. which becomes right. So, so when I refer to goals, I guess I'm not talking about the kind of the old school way of thinking of uh, my goal is to write a book in in German, or my goal is to write a poem in German, because that's far too far in advance. It's far too Mm -hmm. abstract. 
Um, you can't feel the steps in between and you need to break it down to the, the kind of almost the day to day when you get to it. And so I would say things like setting so set, setting a time in your phone for when you're doing something. So mm-hmm. I say that you I always need to have if I'm learning a new language and I, I, I plan to move forward in that language, I need at least two hours or two contact classes to be able to move forward with the materials. So to do something new, to push myself a little bit further. And then the rest of the days I would do um, even as little as five, 10 minutes of a review of what I've done during those two uh, two classes. So mm-hmm. let's take, for example, um, uh, on my phone here, I've got, uh, I have on my calendar, I will set Maori. So one of my projects at the moment is learning Maori. Oh, cool. Um, and I was That's learning, right, I, yeah. I was planning to New Zealand. And I know that my Maori lesson um, is on a Monday morning before I start work. And I know that it's also on a Thursday morning before I start work. And I have it every week that I go through mm-hmm. my Maori class. So I prepare a lesson. I write down the words that I, or the, actually, I'm doing it in a different way this time. So I'm using a way of stories. And now I've got so much rubbish on my desk. Totally disorganized here. But I have a book and I write down the story. So during the week when I'm not um, when I'm not having my lesson, I prepare the lesson. So I write out the story by hand because I like writing things up by hand. And then during the lesson, I'll go over the story and, and we will identify the structures of the language, the vocab in the in the lesson, and what it means. And I will translate that into English with my teacher. Then after that, I will then review. Uh, through until the next lesson, I will review the story or review what we did every day, just for five, ten minutes, maybe half an hour um, each day, just so that it becomes fresh. I'm not doing an intensive study of Maori. It's a pace where I'm moving forward and I know I'm going to forget as much as I learn, but eventually right. enough will stick that I keep moving forward and edging forward. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of where I am with it. It's interesting. It's, it's very relative. Yeah, I love it. That's a really, I love the story-based thing. That's something I've definitely been doing more of lately as well, inspired by Ollie's stuff. Um, but uh, it's funny, the idea of what is intense or not is very relative. Because I think to some people listening to this, they might hear that and go, well, that's, that's a lot of time. You know, that's like, that's a lot of hours a week total. And, and they're thinking, I'm, I'm barely able to get in whatever, you know, 10 minutes a day. And, um that's a that's a question I've been really pondering lately is what obviously it's going to be different for every person but in your experience with acquiring a new language and and having met some of the other successful language learners do you think there's a minimum average amount of time either per day or per week you need to hit to make real tangible progress toward toward a at least conversational level of fluency or is that um, something so you can generalize? I would say that. Uh, no, I definitely. I think you can say that there's. I don't know if I can say exact figure on the minimum. It would depend on the individual. It, there are mm. too many variables, of course, because different right. people learn in different ways. Um, I, I, I did an interview for Vice magazine recently and they quoted this part. You probably saw. Well, yeah. The thing that I noticed, the difference between a successful learner and an unsuccessful learner is that an unsuccessful learner will have maybe one lesson a week. They won't do anything to do with the language between lessons. They'll just right. come to the lesson having forgotten most of what they've done. The progress will be so slow that they'll become de- um, they'll become demotivated and they will end up um, they'll end up just not progressing very very far with language at all a successful language learner would often think whether they're revising it because they're like 5 10 15 minutes half an hour a day sounds like a lot of time right but is that your car journey is that your bus ride can you right. be reading out can you record the lesson and listen to it in the car can you record the audio like you could have a video a pod a video then make a podcast of the video right you could do all that kind of stuff and you're still using the same content, but you're using it in different ways. So can you do that? Can you have that as your thing that you do on your bus ride, on your on your car journey, um, in your break, 
while you're eating your lunch or listen to it, is that your review? Is that where you're making up the hours and the time mm. in between lessons? And then when you get to the lesson, the next lesson, you can start with some new material because you've revised it so many times. You're still right. going to forget a number of the words and things. That's fine. It's normal. But you're going to be moving on at least. And you're going to have that feeling of carrying on forward. I say that as a bare minimum, you need to have at least two blocks of time where you're moving forward with the language. So you're doing something either new or um, you're going into some area that you haven't really explored properly. So whether that's mm. the, the grammatical aspects of the lesson, whether that's um, doing some some exercises, or um, I think usually it's better to just move forward and see new material because most mm. of what we learn, we actually learn through context, right? And, right. and, and repetition repeatedly over and over again. Right. Yeah. And these two blocks, are these... Are these per day, you mean? These are two, so two separate? No, um, i say two separate blocks, so per week. So, for example, me with Maori, um, I have one lesson on a Monday and one on a Thursday. Um, Got it. And, and I'm moving forward with Maori. I'm moving forward. I'm not, I'm not very good at it. I mean, I can embarrass myself being on the native speaker and, um, and probably murder the language sufficiently with three words. <laughs> but I am moving forward with my... Uh, it's turning more into like a manslaughter, getting into a you know sort of grievous bodily harm with the language. As we move forward, soon I'll be giving the language medicine, so that will be good. I'll, I'll be making that that language feel happier about being with me. <laughs> but it's it, it's getting less and less of a uh, yeah something I could be arrested for, and more and more of something that somebody might even end up giving me a box of chocolates for doing. So nice. <laughs> if we get to the box of chocolates, I'll be happy. Yeah. I, that's always been one of my favorite lines is when people ask, you know, how good is your X language? I always say, I'm good enough to get in trouble. <laughs> Take that mm. to mean what you may. Good enough to get for Brett. Exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, and, and, you know, I think that, so some of the languages that I do, I won't do maybe a full hour of class. I will do half mm. an hour. Um, so, depends on your schedule. This is why I think it's important for people to be realistic about the, their time, about their energy, about how much time they can re realistically devote to learning new material. So from some people, they can do like a half hour solid burst on a language. But if you take it to an hour, they just might get fatigued and bored and yeah. tired. And also right. I find sometimes if you go over half an hour, um, some teachers have a tendency to just throw a gazillion words at you that are not useful and not going to stick learn things obviously you need to learn things that are important to you and mean something to you because if you're going to repeat them over and over again that's how they're going to be internalized and um, so i often say that you know even a half an hour lessons twice a week is better than doing an hour once a week um, because then a week is a long time when you're starting a language to forget it's a really long time a week right. um so even if you just do two half an hour sessions every week and you don't do anything in between i don't recommend doing nothing in between i, I think the best the, the best results do a little bit in between but if you just do the two half hour sessions even that's better than a one hour block right yep 100 percent. and what you said before as well is you're you know these are two chunks of basically output practice but then in between those you're definitely getting some you know, combination of input and output, whether it's, you know, the story you're writing out or I'm sure yeah. looking up words and things. So, I mean, even at a very basic level, um, a student that does well in the language, at the very basic level will just think about and consider what they've learned during the, the last, the previous lesson. They'll consider mm -hmm. the words that they've learned. They'll consider the, the sentences. They'll try and make a few sentences, say them out loud even if they're wrong, they'll just be repeating the words. Okay, so we learned the colors. Which colors can I remember? Okay, I can remember blue, I remember pink, I remember orange, I remember whatever. And whichever ones you can remember, at least you're repeating them. And then when you get to the next lesson, if you haven't even reviewed your notes, right? Let's say you don't even review your notes. You're, you're that student, right? As long as you've done a little bit of repetition in your head, that helps. Absolutely. And everyone can do five minutes of that day, right? Right. Uh, that's actually one of my favorite sort of, I don't know if it's worth calling this a method, but habits, maybe is a better word, is throughout your day, even 
mm-hmm. whether it's a language you speak well or even when you're just starting to learn is just as you're going throughout your day doing stuff you'd be doing anyway is trying to think okay if i was describing what i'm doing right now in this target language or or if i want to yeah. say x to somebody in this context right. you know try to say it and and if you're obviously very low level just starting out you're hardly able to say anything but even just reaching for it and trying i think will help lay down those tracks that then you can fill in later yeah and 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 also i mean you know and the words that you learn to say for in a lesson let's say you're in a lesson and you need to say something particular that happened to you and you couldn't think of the word and then you can bring it up in your lesson whether you have a teacher or language partner or someone you can talk to and you can ask them how to say it but learn that sentence that phrase those words off by heart so and make sure you repeat it again the next time you talk, because that's what solidifies a word as well, is when you realize that not only have you have you heard it, you've asked about it, you've learned it, you've internalized it, you repeated it to yourself, and then say it again actively without getting that that sort of hint or that that help from the language partner. Right. Because that's when you go like, oh, you have that or eureka moment and you feel you've you've got this great achievement. You know, you've had this great achievement with the language because you said it automatically and you said it yourself yeah. and it's, it feels good. It's euphoric. Yeah, yeah I love it that. Is. It's euphoric, it is. Yeah, and it's, uh, yeah, those moments get more and more. I think you reach a critical mass after you've been at it for a while and you've, especially if you've been doing something intensively for some period, you start to get those little connections, I think, more and more and more. Absolutely. So, Another thing I wanted to pick your brain on, since you are somebody that does speak so many different languages and has learned so many, um, how do you balance acquiring new languages and maintaining languages that you've already learned? Do you have an actual plan for this? Is it more organic? Do you, is it just you use certain languages all the time because of work and those just sort of stay fresh? Yeah, what does that look like? So people do ask me why I don't learn say random African languages or Asian languages mm-hmm. and this helps to answer the question of that and what you just asked now the reason I don't go so far into those languages is because as beautiful as they are they're not relevant for my job or my social or private life right. generally right. Um, in my day-to-day and um, I accept and recognize that the languages that I need for my job from my living situation are the ones that I need to speak best. I need to practice, need to keep a handle on. Okay. So there'll be the odd language that I'll study. Like I studied some Japanese, I've studied some Chinese, I studied some um, Indonesian, but those languages on my day to day, on a day to day basis for me are just not in my circles of, uh, of, of sort of what I normally hear. And for me, having studied a number of languages, it would be, a huge effort to start adding that different media, that different input, because I only have 24 hours in a day and I do need to sleep and I do need to work and I do need to do other things. Do you have a family? So the languages well. <laughs> that rest become my focus. Yeah, exactly. The languages that I have left are the ones that are my focus, right? So so that that means that I have three major language families that are my main focus in life. And that's the, uh, the, the, the Latin languages, the Romance languages, the Germanic languages and the Slavic languages. And what I find is if you speak a few of those languages really, really well, they become what I call your anchor languages in that family. Mm. So for me, in the Latin group of languages, my anchor languages would be Spanish and French with a, a minor anchor as well with Italian because I've, I studied it quite a lot and I, I have a degree in Italian. Um, so those would be my my two and then my sort of almost, yeah, other, other anchor languages, Italian. Then the other languages I speak are, I, I mean, I studied university, I studied Portuguese as well. And, and then I studied some Catalan. Um, those languages I find never completely leave my head because the other languages in the group remain so strong mm-hmm. and because I use them constantly for work. Um, so when I come to speak them again, they're never they're never dead. They're never completely gone. And I think it's because my brain is trained to, I have this kind of more evolved Latin vocabulary that I've developed over years of studying Latin languages. 
And so it's almost impossible to, to get rid of the other ones. Um, same with German. So in, in Germanic languages, my, my Anka languages would be German, Dutch, and Swedish. Um, and they would be my three stronger languages in that group. Um, and then because of that, the other, the other Germanic languages that I studied also don't completely disappear. Same with Slavic. Um, I, because I, I studied Czech at university um, and also Macedonian is my home language. Serbian is a language we hear an awful lot. Serbian and Croatian particularly are the two variants of, of the, you know, that we hear most of the other Southeast Slavic group of languages. Um, I find that I don't forget how to speak Russian or Bulgarian or um, or or even my my Slovene is not amazing, but it never completely goes. My Polish never completely goes because of the languages that I've got in that group uh, that I use constantly. So that just naturally happens for me with those languages. Now, outside of that group, like I said, I, I spoke, I learned Indonesian still to get by. Now, when I left Indonesia, came back to the Balkans and then, now I decided that I would revisit my Indonesian for fun. And I was like, I was scratching my head. I couldn't think of any words. I was mm-hmm. like, okay, Apakabar is how are you? I remember that Baik, I remember is good, well. Um, I remember Namasaya, Richard, my name's Richard. I remember these kind of very basic things. Saya tinggal di Makedonia, saya tinggal, saya English side from England or the UK, they say England is the UK basically in Indonesian, like many languages, they say in Inglaterra, and they, right, they mean right. they mean El Reino, England. a lot. Yeah, and Japanese too, right? In Japanese, they'll often say that. Um, yeah. they'll, they'll say they'll say English, 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 Yeah, you're like, um, actually, well, never mind. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, and, yeah. and they've got, they've got Ingrando, Ingrando Jin, and they have Scotrando yeah. Jin, uh, right. and they have and they do have those in Japanese, but they'll say Igirisu Jin for everyone, right? Right. Um, and so I remember, I remember things like that, but because I never hear Indonesian, I, it, it just sort of all went. And I've had yeah. a number of languages like that that just go. But what I find is it doesn't take very long for me to get into speaking them and hearing them again, to get what I had back and then to start building on it. So they become kind of almost almost like sort of sleeping languages. Um, mm-hmm. and dormant volcano. A number of languages. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they're dormant, exactly. They become dormant. And um, so... You know, Latvian, I had that with, I had it with Finnish, I've had it with um, with Japanese, Chinese, I've had it with a number of languages where I've had to revive it for a specific thing every now and again, but then it goes back to sleep again. And I, and I just accept that and I'm happy with it. So to answer your question, <laughs> the ones that I need and the ones that I find I need don't tend to go away completely. They may, I may end up speaking with a few mistakes if I if I revive them a little bit, and then there are others that will go really quite fast to sleep, and and I'm I'm okay with that. I'm kind of I'm I'm at peace with that happening, mm-hmm. and right. um, I accept it as a normal state of affairs, and um, I don't feel a kind of a loss or a mourning because of that happening. I accept that I can't study all languages all of the time, otherwise right. I'd never do anything else. Right. But also it answers that question of why don't you, well, if you want a real challenge, why don't you learn Korean to C2 level? Well, I don't learn Korean to C2 level because A, yeah, it would take me an awful lot of time and energy and it would be very difficult. I may not, I may not achieve it to, in your eyes. Um, yeah. But also, why would I learn Korean to C2 yeah. level? For, right. for what purpose? Um, yeah. Just to show, to show you that I can or can't do it to the level yeah. that you want me to be at. No, that's not a reason for me to study a language and I wouldn't have been motivated to learn it. And also I think sometimes we talk about C, these A1 to C2 levels in languages and we use them and we don't really understand what that means. Um, and also, you know, at what stage do you agree with the level that somebody gives me or, right. or I give myself? Right. right. It's also and not linear. Matter. It doesn't matter. That's yeah. The most important point. It doesn't matter. 
Two, it's not linear. I mean, if you look at the, it's a logarithmic yeah. scale in my mind, you know, from A1 to C2, it's, uh, you could get probably B1-ish pretty quick if you go about it right. But then from B1 to like B2 and then B2 to C1, I mean, that's a lot of extra time and effort. Um, but one of the things that, that kind of ties this conversation together, going all the way back to the beginning, talking about those basic foundational psychological components is that I always come back to again and again is about having a why. You have to have a powerful, strong, chewy why for learning your language. And you're, I think, living proof of this. You've learned all these languages, but you had a why for the ones that you've really mastered. And the ones that you even dabbled in, you got to a travel-friendly conversational level pretty quick because you had a why for travel. But then once that travel had passed yeah. and you didn't have an immediate purpose, you kind of let it recede away. And I, I think yeah. that's really important. Yeah, I think it is, it is important, the whole reasoning for, for why you want to do it. Um, and uh, I think it's often good if, if you're not sure and you can't immediately decide this, write down one, write down the reasons why and see whether or not they actually fit in with what you want and your goals and your objectives. Mm-hmm. And can they fit in with your life and your schedule? Um, right. I got a question the other day on a, on a, live, on a live chat. And it was from somebody who couldn't decide which language to do. And they felt that they were dabbling in lots of different languages and felt that they weren't making any progress because they, were, they couldn't decide. And my advice is similar to that as well. If, if you can't decide, write down the reasons. And also use that kind of technique in management that we talk about. Where do you envisage yourself being or where do you want to be? What do you want to say you've achieved in a year, two years, five years? Mm-hmm. Because if you're talking about learning Chinese, talk about a minimum of a five-year plan because, um, you know, a year and a half, two years, three years, you might start be saying, you might be saying things, you might even be fairly good uh, and, and, you know, a level, but um, talk about really long-term plans for some of these languages because um, if, the, if, 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 if nothing else, it helps you to filter out what you don't need mm-hmm. in your life and what you shouldn't be doing so that you can focus on what you should be doing to achieve that longer term vision, because you can then work backwards from the longer term vision onto a monthly, yearly, monthly, weekly, daily plan of what you're doing so that you reach that goal. And you have these measurable goals all the way up. to the. I mean, you may not write it down in every single day of every single week of every single month, of every single year, <laughs> right, a five year right. goal, but at least, and and the goal might move, and that's fine too. It, you know, we don't fixate too much on the goal in terms of if I don't get there, I failed, because that's not right. the point. The point right, of the right. goal is to give you structure, and the point of structure is so that you can look back and say, "I have achieved it," and feel happy that you've achieved something. Yeah, yeah, and you and know, that helps with the why. Is right. Yeah, knowing which way to row your boat, I think, is so important. Because otherwise you're just floating in the ocean. You have to. You need a port to to aim at. Even if you decide yeah. on the way to that port, like actually, you know what? I want to go to this other place. That's okay. But yeah, just sitting in the ocean and letting the currents move you around is not a good strategy. No, and uh, hey, look, you may you may row your boat into a direction. You may end up in the middle of the Atlantic, and you're sitting there in your boat, enjoying watching the waves, enjoying watching the sky and the birds fly by. And that might be where you end up. And and mm. if your boat is anchored at that point in the ocean and you didn't reach the original goal you had, but your goal changed and came down to what you really need because you ended up moving to a different place. You didn't go to, your plan didn't work out because the university didn't send you to the country you thought you were going to do, you're going to go to, right. or you didn't get the job where you're supposed to be, or anything could happen, right? You fell out with your girlfriend or boyfriend or um, your partner and you, you ended up not following that path right. but you set your anchor down where you ended up and that's actually fine because you use that basic those basic pleasantries when you go to the Chinese restaurant and you talk to your friend who works there and and, and it's a nice little bit of banter before you have your your meal and that's how you ended up with your Chinese and hey that's fine it's better than not ending up anywhere right right 
you, you landed on this little desert island in the middle of the Atlantic in your happy. <laughs> <laughs> and one day, one day you might repair that boat and you might set sail for Miami. Who knows? You know, who knows? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's beautiful. I like, I think that's a good uh, sentiment maybe to end on uh, the chat today. Just real quick, a uh, couple of housekeeping things. We're recording this in middle of May. Uh, still kind of the height of the coronavirus craziness. Um, just a few mm-hmm. kind of think rapid fire things I want to ask you about. One is we have the Polyglot Conference, which is scheduled for October in Mexico. Mm-hmm. So I just kind of want to quickly touch on that with an update, um, what, what the thinking is around that. Uh, and then also, if you have any final tips for people to continue making progress on languages at home, we've already talked about some of those ways they can do it, but maybe just some final thoughts there. Okay, so um, with Mexico, then I would say at the moment we're watching the situation carefully to see what we're going to do. Um, Clearly, there is going to be an impact on the event in Mexico, whether it means it's a reduced conference physically or whether and and then also combined with an online version or whether it becomes a completely online version for this year. And then we go back to Mexico maybe the following year. Um, We haven't made a final decision at the time of recording on that. Uh, but we are going to be announcing it um, in June and we will put it on the website. And also I've been doing um, every two weeks on a Sunday at um, 5 p.m. Central European time, which is 10 a.m. Cholula time in Mexico. Um, I do an updated um, an update on, uh, on live on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube and answer people's questions and talk about our plans for the Polyglot Conference. There will be something happening in October. Uh, The form it takes is to be decided. Um, I hope that people listening will apply to speak and to come and and join us because whatever we do will be a lot of fun. Um, We'll we'll have activities, I hope, as well. We're working with Langfest this year as well, as as you mentioned uh, in the beginning. So Langfest and and the Polyglot Conference teamed up this year and Langfest... Originally, we're going to be doing all of the sort of the social type of things around the conference mm-hmm. as well, and and having some input as well into the main conference itself. And um, you know, Tetsu and and, and the, the language team are amazing people, and I would definitely encourage people to go to Montreal when they have a an event back there again as well. Um, right now, we're in talks with them. We're deciding together what we're going to do for this year and also next year. So, look out on the Polyglot Conference. Page, social media pages and on the website and i'll definitely link to all those then, in the show notes for sure yep thank you very much and then um your second question was about language learning was it i think yeah so any any parting tips or advice for people that are wanting to continue learning or start a new language uh at home not that it needs to necessarily be any different from normal but quarantine specific advice Okay, so what I have, and actually, because advice is very different and very varied, and I think this is probably a, a quick fire round, um, I started doing some uh, weekly uh, talks and QA live sessions on YouTube and Facebook on my Speaking Fluently um, Facebook page and Instagram page, and also on YouTube, uh, it's Speaking Fluently, but I think it's been renamed under the names on to just Richard Simcott on, on um my youtube channel on uh, so people can join live and ask questions on youtube instagram and on facebook and they can ask me any question they want about language learning i do my best to answer as many as i possibly can and um and i'm more specific in there and can give more solid advice that's relevant to the people who are listening um right. in general terms i say that um you need to find materials that resonate with you whether you're more of a reader and you want to read more and you use books like you say you know ollie's uh, types of stories uh ollie richards uh, has got some nice series of stories that he brought out recently um, and is continuing to work on expand on um whether it's reading things and listening to podcasts on link which is steve kaufman's uh, site which at the moment i'm personally using a lot of and also i'm using it with a lot with my daughter um, mm. she's really got into Link and is really enjoying Link. <laughs> so, so yeah, big shout out to, uh, Steve and, and the crew. 
I'm not on commission with any of these. Um, yes, I did co-author one of the uh, books with um, with Ollie, uh, which is the French one. Um, but otherwise, I'm on no commission. <laughs> I do think that they are they, they're worth exploring. Um, yep. But it depends on what you like. Look, some people love um, love some of the uh, the apps like Memorize, and and I think if that works for you, great as well. Memorize the Memorize team do do some great work. But I will always say that um, your course books like Teach Yourself, Asimil, um, you know they 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 do a good job in putting together the, the types of things that you need for day-to-day conversation. And mm-hmm. they're good as a structure to use with a teacher. And iTalk is a great place to go to find teachers, language partners, um, people to sort of go through the courses with you and for you to have these results. And they're very good places to start to set these goals that we talked about and a daily right. routine. So they're always good things to have. I love it. Well, Richard, thank you so much. It's fun to chat again. And I'm uh, hoping I can see you in October in Mexico, but if not, at least online. So looking forward to it. Exactly. Well, I hope so too. Fingers crossed, everything crossed, and um, yes. and we'll see what happens. If not online or next year, I'm sure we'll meet Indeed. up again. Sounds good. All right. Well, take care. And I know it's late for you, so I will wish you good night. Thank you very much. Well, it was Really nice. Thank you for having me and a pleasure to see you. Take care of yourself. And remember, during COVID-19, stay negative. Take care. (laughs) Good good parting words. All right, brother. Take care. (laughs) Bye-bye. Thank you very much for listening to the Language Mastery Show. For show notes, go to languagemastery.com slash show. And also at languagemastery.com, you can find my free email course and links to my books on learning Mandarin and Japanese and much, much more. All right. We'll see you next Language Mastery Monday.